Normal broadcasting has been discontinued. Coming to you from Portland, Oregon. The sports business capital of North America. Keep your radio tuned to this frequency. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Now, your host. I tell you, I've never seen anything like that guy. Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Glad you could join us this week. Well, if you don't have a last name of Davis, you're not getting onto the show with me this week. In segment three, Seth Davis. He's a college basketball analyst for CBS Sports, a staff writer at Sports Illustrated. He joins us to discuss his new book that comes out this Tuesday. It's called When March Went Mad, The Game That Transformed Basketball. And it celebrates the game that changed basketball as we know it, the 1979 NCAA tournament final between Larry Bird and his undefeated Indiana State Sycamores and Magic Johnson's Michigan State Spartans. The game remains the highest-rated televised basketball game ever 30 years later. In segment four, Cindy Davis. She's the president of Nike Golf. She joins us to discuss the return of Tiger Woods to the golf course this week. Woods is the face of Nike Golf, and we'll discuss a new TV spot Nike Golf produced to welcome Tiger back to the golf course after eight months. I'll also ask Davis about Michelle Wee. Wee is being paid big bucks by Nike Golf, yet she's had a disappointing start to her career and is yet to win an LPGA event. That's coming up in segment four. We've also got headlines. Michael Vick. Might he be getting out of the, the tin can a little early? We'll talk about that. That's all coming up on this edition of Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. This is Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio. I know many of our listeners dream of a job in the sports industry but don't know where to begin. To me, it's an easy call. Go where sports business education got its start, at the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. As the first business school in the country to offer undergraduate and graduate programs themed around this multi-billion dollar industry, the Warsaw Center offers a unique blend and strong general business training, sports business curriculum taught by industry experts, and rich out-of-classroom experiences including real-world consulting projects, study tours, and internships. With a strong industry and alumni network and a staff dedicated to accelerating your career, the Warsaw Center has a proven track record of placing students in teams, league offices, corporate sponsors, marketing agencies, sports media, and sports shoe and apparel firms. But like any elite team, there's only a few spots on the roster. To learn more, visit sportsbusinessradio.com for a link to the center's website. The Warsaw Sports Marketing Center. Passion, integrity, and leadership in sports business education. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. It's time for this week's Sports Business Radio headline sponsored by the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. Visit warsawcenter.com for more information. Headline number one, after an eight-month hiatus, Tiger Woods officially returned to the golf course this week. Although he lasted only two matches at the WGC Accenture match play event outside of Tucson, Arizona, Tiger's every move was covered by the Golf Channel. But NBC, who has the weekend coverage of the event, has to be devastated because they've been running promos all week touting Tiger is back, and Tiger never made it to the weekend. Before Tiger announced his return, there were 473 media credential requests for the match play event. After the announcement, another 105 came in, and the number of satellite trucks covering this event went from 3 to 11. So all kinds of coverage 
around Tiger's return to the golf course. Another tidbit of interest related to Tiger is that he was sporting the AT&T logo on his golf bag for the first time. AT&T is the title sponsor of the PGA Tour AT&T National Tournament that Woods hosts in July. Also serves as the presenting sponsor of Woods' main charity event, Tiger Jam. Woods has never done commercials for AT&T, but under a new expanded deal, he will now star in spots for AT&T. AT&T replaces Buick, who had been on the sponsor on Tiger's bag for the previous nine years. Coming up in our Sports Sense segment, in segment four of the show, you'll hear my conversation with Nike Golf President Cindy Davis, who will discuss the return of Tiger Woods, who really is the face of Nike Golf. She'll discuss with that, that with us in segment four. Our next headline, imprisoned NFL star Michael Vick will be allowed to serve the last two months of his sentence under home confinement because there's no room for him at a halfway house. That's interesting. Vic is serving a 23-month sentence at the federal penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas, after pleading guilty to bankrolling a dogfighting operation at a home he owned in eastern Virginia's Surrey County. He also admitted to participating in the killing of several underperforming dogs. Vic's lawyers have said they expect him to be moved any day now into a halfway house in Newport News, but because of the lack of space... Vic will be released instead to his home in nearby Hampton at some point on or after May 21st. This according to a government official who spoke on the condition of anonymity. Love when those people speak out uh, when they're not supposed to. Vic will be on electronic monitoring and will be allowed to leave home for activities approved by his probation officer only. This is going to be interesting to see where this all goes. Michael Vick is eligible to be a free man in July. Will the NFL penalize Michael Vick and delay his return to the NFL? Or will Michael Vick be eligible to play for an NFL team starting this fall? Keep your eye on that. All right, Seth Davis. He is a college basketball reporter for Sports Illustrated and CBS Sports. He's got a great new book out. And it is called When March Went Mad, the game that transformed basketball celebrates the 1979 final between Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. That interview is coming up next. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. My guest is Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Let's go back to the year 2000. The year before you bought the Mavericks, they were 40 and 42. Fan interest was pretty lukewarm. When you bought this team, what did you see in this team? What was the potential that you saw to get them to where they are today? Probably none. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. I think the reason why we have a BCS-type system in Division 1A and elsewhere we have playoffs is that the schools in Division 1A feel that the regular season is the most important aspect of football. Read the Sports Business blog and listen to SBR On Demand at sportsbusinessradio.com. See, I think that's the big thing. Sports Business Radio, Saturday. <laughs> Or online at sportsbusinessradio.com. This is Sports Business Radio. Seth Davis is an on-air studio analyst for CBS Sports' coverage of NCAA basketball. He's an on-air host, reporter, and analyst for the CBS College Sports Network. He's also a staff writer at Sports Illustrated and SI.com, where he's worked since 1995. 
Seth joins us this week to discuss his new book, which hits bookstores and Amazon.com on Tuesday. It's called When March Went Mad, The Game That Transformed Basketball. The book looks back at the 1979 NCAA tournament finals between Larry Bird and his undefeated Indiana State Sycamores and Magic Johnson and his Michigan State Spartans. The game is the highest-rated college basketball game ever, and it set the stage for one of the most competitive personal rivalries the sports world has ever seen between Bird and Magic. Seth, thanks for joining us this week on Sports Business Radio. How are you? I'm doing great, Brian. It's my time of year, isn't it? Oh, it sure is, and it's definitely your time of year. Hey, I was in, really intrigued by this book and the, the topic of the book when I heard about it. It's such a great topic. How much cooperation did you get from Larry Bird and Magic Johnson for this book? <laughs> Zero. Made it easy. <laughs> really? Yeah, those guys, you know, they're at a point in their lives where – uh, you know, they kind of do that. They're not giving anything away for free. So fortunately, you know, both of them have written books and had books written about them and have done uh, scores and scores of interviews. So I certainly wasn't hurting for material. So you were able to go to people around them and people who were at that night in 1979, the uh, the Salt Lake City NCAA championship game between Indiana State and Michigan State? Yeah, I mean, I got everybody else. You know, the two coaches are still alive and uh, all the teammates, and, and, I, and I, I had a lot of primary source material, you know, the day-to-day newspaper coverage. coverage. I spent a lot of time in uh, libraries going through microfiche God. And, uh, you know, that, that sort of thing. So, like I said, it definitely wasn't hurting for, for material. For the, and it was a fascinating story to be able to piece together, you know, 30 years into the future. Yeah, I mean, let's go back to 1979. Bird was the player of the year in college basketball. Magic Johnson was really this maestro with the million-dollar smile. And this is back in 1979, before the Internet, really before ESPN took off, before sports and media was what we know it as today. How did word spread about Bird and Magic leading up to this night in 1979? Well, let me put it to you this way. Uh, right up until the final game, there were, uh, Bird's teammates and coaches, they had people who uh, they knew from their hometowns who didn't realize that Larry Bird was white. <laughs> Are you serious? Uh, yeah, that, that's how underexposed they were. In fact, I always use the example of you know the night of the game, Bryant Gumbel, ironically enough, was uh, hosting the pregame segment for, for NBC. Of course, there was no set, no trappings, no sponsor, regrettably no uh, information reporter in a suit next to him for passing on analysis, just Bryant. And so it's the night of the game, and it's the pregame segment, and as he's talking over highlights of Larry Bird, he says, if you've never seen Larry Bird play, you're in for a treat. I mean, think about that for a second. This is the night of the game, and he's telling people if you haven't seen Larry Bird play. Like in my current role for CBS, would it have ever occurred to me uh, last year to say, if you haven't seen Derrick Rose play, you're in for a treat. You know, if you haven't seen Greg Oden, if you haven't seen Christian Leitner play, you're in for a treat. Um, this was the world that, that they walked into, and, you know, you mentioned ESPN. Uh, this game was played on March 26, 1979. ESPN uh, was launched on September 7, 1979. So that had as much to, as anything to do with the impact of this game. Uh, just the sheer timing of it was, was truly at the dawn of an era. Now, Seth, NBC telecast the game, as you just mentioned, but correct me if I'm wrong, I think that somewhere in your book you wrote, this is still the highest-rated college basketball game ever. Is that correct? Yeah, well, no, uh, actually college or pro basketball really? game. It did, it did a 24.1 Nielsen rating, and every point represents 1% of, of television sets in the United States. So uh, one in every four 
TV sets that night were tuned into this game. Uh, you know, if you compare that this past year, the Memphis-Kansas game, we at CBS, we did a 12.7, which was a great number. And the reason is obvious. I mean, there were, back then there were four channels, and now there's uh, 800 channels on, on, uh, on my uh, television. So, um, you know, it, it will always forever be the highest-rated game, college or pro, if, if for no other reason. And there are so many more choices now. What was it about Bird and Magic at that time that captivated us? And, you know, as your book writes, that really lifted this tournament to the next level. Well, you know, it was it was the perfect storm in, in, in a lot of ways, Brian. I mean, you know, these guys, you know, first and foremost, they were great players. And I think that people understood that these were unique uh, and uniquely talented guys. They were big. They both wore the number 33. They were amazing passes and, passers, and, and they were great winners. I think people understood that it was uh, a real... Uh, treat to be able to see them play. I mean, you know, uh, the Spartans kind of steamrolled through the tournament, but uh, Bird's team was, was very fortunate to make it to that final game, barely beating Arkansas and, and then DePaul uh, to be able to get there. So it was a great opportunity. But there was, you know, a lot of uh, you know, interesting subplots, you know, the most obvious one being the fact that they were of different races. Uh, you know, Magic is black and uh, Larry, of course, is white. And, and then the whole David versus Goliath thing, there was a lot of mystery and intrigue about Indiana State. I mean, this was, you know, they came from something called the Missouri Valley Conference, and they were picked to finish fourth in the league in, in the preseason. That, that's how, uh, you know, underestimated they were. And, and they made it to the championship game undefeated. They were 33-0, and and yet people still didn't really know a lot about them, and, and they weren't sure that they were for real. So it was, you know, you had this sense that it was a sort of David versus Goliath and, you know, the sort of small-town, mysterious farm boy uh, and his four chemistry majors, uh, you know, taking on the big, uh, powerful school from the Big Ten with this charismatic urban superstar. And, uh, you know, if it was a best-of-seven series, you know, maybe you wouldn't have had that intrigue because Michigan State was certainly a better team. But in a one-game scenario – Anything is possible, and that really established the ethos of the NCAA tournament. It's the only sporting event where a story like Indiana State can happen, where you know you get one shot at the big boys, and, and in a one-game scenario, who knows what can happen? Yeah, I mean, it's just an amazing story. You know, this is a business show, so I look at the NCAA tournament now, and it's no secret CBS pays billions of dollars for the rights to carry this tournament. And you're talking about 1979 NBC doing this tournament. They had no sponsors. There was one commentator. I mean, you know, it was like cable access TV back then. Right, and it wasn't until um, the regional final that they that the games were on national television. So even even the uh, the Sweet Sixteen, of course, nobody called it the Sweet Sixteen back then. But the regional semifinals, uh, those were regional television. In fact, when CBS. Um, not even when they got the uh, games from from NBC, but in their second contract, which would have been probably about 1986, um, they got that deal because they said, "Hey, we'll put the regional semifinals on on national television." So it was, you know, I, I, I make the argument in the book, Brian, that the uh, period, the six-year period of 1979 to 1985. Uh, is the golden era of the NCAA tournament. That's when it all happened. You had six players during that six-year span who were introduced to the tournament who would go on to dominate the NBA for the next 20 years. You had Larry and Magic, Isaiah Thomas with Indiana in 81, Michael Jordan with North Carolina in 82, and then Patrick Ewing and Akeem Olajuwon with Georgetown and Houston. During that six-year period, you had two of the greatest championship game upsets of all time. NC State in 1983, and then, of course, Villanova over Georgetown, uh, in 1985, and then during that, that 
that period, uh, the tournament had been expanded for uh, the 1979 tournament. They went up to 40 teams. It expanded twice more between 79 and 85. In 1985, uh, they went to 64 teams. And aside from the addition of uh, the play-in game, uh, they've never expanded it since 1985. So, so this period between 79 and 85, and, and Magic and Bird launched it. I mean, you know, if, if that game had come along 15 or 20 years later, it still would have been a cool event and a memorable occasion, but it would not have had the transformative impact that this game did because it just came along at the exactly perfect time to have maximum impact. Seth, what was the relationship between Magic Johnson and Larry Bird in college? Had they ever met each other before they stepped on the court that evening in 1979? Uh, you know, in fact, they had. They played uh, on a uh, USA basketball team the previous summer in, in something called the World Invitational Tournament. They played overseas in Russia, and then they played uh, a, a little tournament in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, and it's funny because Joby Hall, uh, the Kentucky coach, was the coach of that team, and he had a lot of his own Kentucky players. So those guys barely played. They they were on the second team because he was he was favoring his own uh, Kentucky players. And you know that was also the first time that Billy Packer, who at the time was working for NBC, got a chance to see Larry Bird play. Uh, and and he was kind of underwhelmed by that experience, and that informed Billy Packer's opinion throughout the season that Indiana State probably wasn't for real, uh, which really earned him the uh, enmity of, of people in Terre Haute. So with respect to Billy Packer, the more things change, the more they stay the same. But, uh, you know, there's, there's a, a moment that I, um, that I discovered uh, the day before the game, both teams were practicing in, in the Special Events Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, and Indiana State was practicing first, and they were coming off the court, and, and, and Michigan State was getting ready to take the court. And Magic Johnson, because they had been teammates the summer before, went up to Larry uh, to say hello and wish him luck, and Larry took one look at him and blew right on by, didn't say a word. Didn't want to have anything to do with him, wasn't interested in being his friend. And Magic was really ticked off at that, and that kind of fueled his own competitiveness. He spent the rest of the day saying to his, saying to his teammates, hey, if that's how he wants it, that's how it's going to be. And, you know, that really set the tone for that relationship and that rivalry. You know, for their first few years in the NBA, they wouldn't even shake hands before tip-off. They, they had no desire to be friends, no desire to have any kind of relationship. It was only when they started filming some shoot commercials together and they got a chance to spend some time uh, that they really began to appreciate just how similar they really were. You know, Midwestern kids from big families who love basketball, great competitors, great personalities, and, of course, they became best friends. But they had a lot to, to muddle through before they were able to get to that point. Seth, you and I have seen each other at several of the high school basketball events uh, showcasing the elite basketball players. What was the landscape back in the day of 1979? Were Larry Bird and Magic Johnson heavily recruited? What was the process for getting these guys to come play at your university? There was very little um, national uh, showcases, uh, Brian. You know, I think really the only that, you know the main place to go at that point for national recognition was Five Star, uh, the camps in uh, in Pennsylvania, and uh, you know uh, the guy. You know, Magic was basically trying to decide all all along between Michigan and Michigan State. There were a few other schools that were in the mix. Uh, UCLA was there. Maryland was there. Uh, the, the main recruiting assistant at Michigan back then was Bill Frieder, uh, who, of course, was a very dogged recruiter, very personable guy, and, uh, you know, first saw Magic as a freshman in high school and knew instantly just how good he was, got him into Johnny Orr's camp at Michigan, and, and successfully convinced Ma- uh, Magic not to go to five-star. So, uh, you know, Magic was certainly highly regarded. He was a big-time superstar celebrity in his own community and eventually led his, led his uh, high school team to a state championship. But from a national perspective, 
you just didn't have the kind of attention that you have now. Uh, with respect to Larry Bird, I mean, the story of his life, you know, he came from this small town and played for Springs Valley High School in French Lick, and, you know, nobody knew how good Larry was because there was no way to evaluate him against uh, high-quality competition. I mean, even after he got to Indiana State, he had to spend a year sitting out as a redshirt. His coaches didn't even realize how good he, he really was because, you know, they saw him killing the varsity, but the varsity wasn't any good. So, you know, how good is he really? And you know, as they were taking the court for his very first game as a sophomore after being on campus for a full year as a redshirt, and they saw him every day in practice, the head coach, Bob King, turned to one of his assistants and said, you know what, if this kid can get us 15 and 10, we'll have a heck of a fine. Well, his first game, he had 31 and 15 along with 10 assists and 10 steals. So, um, and, and, you know, and Larry had those doubters all the way up until the NBA. You know, could he really take it to the next level? But, uh, you know, if Larry Bird was coming on, on today, you know, I mean, things would have been different in so many ways. He would have been able to play against top-quality competition, so he would have known how good he was. Uh, he would have been forced to interact outside of his community. It would have matured him, and um, you know he would have had more confidence in, in himself. He would have interacted with the media more. Uh, and I think that he probably would have been prepared mentally and physically to, to play at a school like Indiana. He just he just wasn't emotionally capable of dealing uh, with that situation, which is why he, he didn't even make it to the start of practice at the end of September, packed up his stuff, went out and, hit, and, and thumbed, a, uh, thumbed a ride back to French Lake because he just had to get out of there. Seth, last question. You know, the NBA is a juggernaut now, very healthy league. Uh, you know, we see – televised all over the world, really. And you write in your book, and I think you're right on the money with this, if it weren't for Magic and Larry Bird, the NBA may not be what we know it as today. I think you're right on the mark there. You know, I think there's some truth to that, Brian, although I think that in time we would have gotten here from there. Um, you know, I mean, this television revolution was coming. You know, very few people in 1979 really understood what was what was on the horizon, and uh, you know, of course, Bill Rasmussen and his crew in Bristol, Connecticut, they, they had no idea how, how big things were going to be. So, you know, sports and the game of basketball, you know, the NBA had nowhere to go but up. Uh, as you probably know, you know, Magic Johnson played in one of the most uh, incredible games in NBA history as a rookie, game six against the Philadelphia 76ers with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar back in L.A. with an ankle injury. Magic, as a rookie, started at center for the Lakers in game six of the finals, scored 42 points and led them to the NBA, uh, NBA championship that night. That game wasn't even on live television. Yeah, it was tape it, delayed. It, it was on tape delay. It was aired at 11 o'clock. And so um, the NBA ha- had a lot of room to grow. And, you know, Magic and Bird, again, they came along at the exact right time, unbelievably fortuitous that they went to the, the league's two storied franchises, opposite coasts. Again, the diametric personalities. You had the Lunch Pail Gang in Boston and, and the Showtime uh, fast-breaking uh, Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, and, you know, they, they, they met in the middle and, you know, the, the league was, was obviously revitalized around those two guys and really paved the way for the Michael Jordans, the Patrick Ewings, uh, LeBron James, you know, all the guys who came after really owe a great debt to Magic and Larry for, for revitalizing the league at, at, a, at a time when it really needed it desperately. When March Went Mad, the game that transformed basketball by Seth Davis, the book is out Tuesday. You can order it now at Amazon.com. Find it in bookstores everywhere starting this Tuesday. Seth, terrific job with the book. Best of luck uh, with your coverage with CBS with the NCAA tournament. I'll look forward to watching you as always. Brian, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for having me on the show. Good to talk to you too. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. 
When I'm looking for a place to have dinner with family, friends, or business associates, there's only one restaurant on my list. Morton's The Steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. In its 28th year in business, Morton serves only the finest quality foods, featuring USDA prime-age beef, fresh seafood, hand-picked produce, and decadent desserts prepared to perfection. Not to mention the award-winning wine list. When my destination is Morton's, the best is always on the menu. And they treat me like a VIP during every visit, whether in the dining room or the private boardrooms. With almost 75 restaurants conveniently located around the world, Morton's is the gold standard when it comes to steakhouses. To find the Morton's nearest you or to make a reservation, go online to mortons.com. Morton's, the best steak anywhere and the official steakhouse of Sports Business Radio. One-on-one with those making the big-time decisions that impact your sport. This is Sports Sense on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio. My guest is Cindy Davis, the president of Nike Golf. Prior to working with Nike, Davis was a senior vice president at the Golf Channel, and she's held various senior management level roles at the Arnold Palmer Company and with the LPGA. Cindy, thanks for joining us this week on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So for our listeners that may not be familiar with the structure of Nike Golf, could you start by explaining how Nike Golf fits within the overall Nike universe? It's my understanding that Nike Golf is a standalone company, but it's under the Nike umbrella. Can you explain that a little better for our listeners? That is actually um, very accurate, Brian. We are a a separate operating company in many senses because we run our own P&L. But when Nike reports us, um, as a publicly traded company, we roll up under the line called other revenues. But every expense, every sale, every profit all falls within the Nike Golf P&L. Are there any advantages or disadvantages to being set up that way? Well, we did it that way largely to, frankly, service our customer, and that being the golfer. The, uh, the industry is so unique in how it operates and different in many ways than big Nike and, and how that business runs that it made sense for us to separate ourselves out, be authentic to the golfer, and be authentic to how the golf business operates. Cindy, over the past decade, Nike Golf has reportedly grown from a roughly $120 million a year business to $600 million a year. And, you know, 10 years ago, many industry types had their doubts about Nike Golf's ability to gain market share going up against such established golf brands as TaylorMade, Callaway, Titleist. You've always done really well with selling apparel, but boy, I think what's most impressive about about what Nike Golf has done in the last 10 years is the uh, strides you've made in the equipment market with clubs and then with golf balls. Maybe you can talk about that growth a little bit. Sure. Um, you know, while, while we are um, a, a separate operating company, we really can't comment on the specifics of our financials because it does roll up within sure. overall Nike. But I can tell you, um, we've been in this business now for about 11 years and started with the apparel and the footwear side of the business and have really um, been able to establish a leadership role in both of those categories. And, and that would make sense intuitively because we were able to draft off of a lot of the resources and the technologies that Nike had and translate those to the golfer. On the um, ball and club side, we really built that from scratch. And um, what what I really admire and applaud about our approach to this is we looked at it from a long-term standpoint, and we made the significant investments you've got to make in infrastructure, 
in an R&D to really set the business up for longer-term success. We've been in the, in the club and ball business now for about seven years, and really when you step back and you look at what we've done, to your point, from an innovation standpoint, from a market share standpoint in that short period of time, it really is remarkable, particularly in a crowded marketplace. Well, and you talk about R&D for our listeners out there. That's research and development. And, you know, I've done some uh, work with Nike Golf in the past, and I know Tom Stites has done an incredible job with the golf club development. And then you've got Rock Ishii on the golf ball side of things. Maybe you can talk about the impact those two highly respected gentlemen have brought to the Nike Golf brand. Tom Stites, I'll start with him. He's our, our lead designer and creative director from uh, a club research and development perspective, and was uh, part of, we actually um, acquired Tom's business, and um, that really began to put us in the business. Um, we, we acquired it down in Fort Worth, Texas, and we have now multiplied that business from both an engineer standpoint and from a square footage standpoint um, almost really 30 times. And um, he has been highly regarded. He started his career working directly with Ben Hogan and the Ben Hogan Company. He's been credited with a lot of innovations out there and brought some good insights in how to launch that side of the business for us and to really build a, a strong um, team to compete effectively on the club side of business. Um, Rakishi, who um, came to us from Bridgestone, which um, is is one of the leaders in the golf ball business as well, um, from at least an intellectual property standpoint, has has also been a real entrepreneur in building that side of the business, both from an innovation standpoint and from a manufacturing standpoint and from an engineering team standpoint. We've been fortunate to have two leaders that came here, have built the business, that work closely with the athletes we have on tour, and have really... Um, helped us deliver innovative uh, products to the golfer. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't you say, and I've talked to Kel Devlin about this previously, that some of the athletes that you have on board with Nike Golf have wanted to come on board with you because of Tom and because of Rock, because they know that they're working with such uh, innovative people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, no athlete is going to want to be on your team, in this case the Nike Golf team, unless they can get products that perform and they can win with. And um, obviously, when you have the world number one player in Tiger um, playing our products and winning with our products, and that at least was the first establishment of credibility from performing products on the club and ball side, it grew from there. And um, a lot of these athletes, you know, admire our products, enjoy, you know, working with our products, and um, also, frankly, like the Nike way, meaning how we put the athlete first and how we service them to make sure that when they tee it up, they've got absolutely what they need to go win. My guest is Cindy Davis. She's the president of Nike Golf. All right, Cindy, the big news in the sports world this week is that Tiger Woods has returned to the golf course after knee surgery that kept him out all of last year following the U.S. Open victory he had in June. You've got a new TV commercial that you're airing this week. Tell us about that spot, if you would. We're we're as excited, I think, as uh, the entire sporting world because we knew when when Tiger um, had won the U.S. Open and announced that he wouldn't be playing the rest of the year, that all eyes would be on Tiger and Nike Golf when he returned. And we wanted to do something creative to to mark his return. And we are introducing a new 60-second spot 
that essentially does two things. Number one, it obviously celebrates Tiger's return. And then secondly, it also celebrates the 2008 victories of five other Nike golf athletes because beyond Tiger, we have Justin Leonard, Stuart Sink, Trevor Immelman, Carl Peterson, and Anthony Kim starring in this spot. Interesting. I've seen the spot. You can actually go to our website, sportsbusinessradio.com. We've linked to Nike Golf where you can see the spot. And you can also see what Tiger's going to be wearing this weekend. And, Cindy, that's another interesting part of the business that I'm sure a lot of our listeners don't know about. You script ahead of time what Tiger and what your other athletes are going to wear. Maybe you could talk about that process, how far in advance you script the outfits for golfers like Tiger? Yeah, well, knowing that um, this was going to be a a, a big sports story and, and, frankly, could be one of the biggest sports stories of the year, his return, we actually worked very closely with Tiger, not only on what he's wearing from an apparel standpoint and from a footwear standpoint, also what's in his bag. So Tiger's showing up, um, obviously sporting our new spring apparel deliveries. He's wearing the new Air Zoom TW footwear, and he's playing our new Dymo driver and our new VR blade irons, um, as well as continuing to play his one platinum golf ball. So Tiger is, you know, fully fully kitted out in Nike golf product and current product that we're launching. So we, you know, obviously work with Tiger and all of our Nike golf athletes to make sure that they are, they are prepared and, and are aligned with the product we're selling. And, um, and we make sure that that product's available for golfers who want to go try it and see how it can fit for their game. Yeah, how soon is the product available? I mean, if I'm watching Tiger wear something this weekend or I see something in his bag and I want to go to my nearest retail outlet, can I get it as soon as this weekend? Absolutely. All the product that Tiger is playing and wearing is available at retail. Interesting. So, Cindy, Tiger is the most marketable athlete on the planet. Uh, Give me your thoughts on what makes Tiger so marketable. What are the, I mean, we know he's a champion, but besides that, what are the other facets that make him the most marketable athlete on the planet? You know, we have always looked at Tiger as one of those really unique special athletes that come along, um, you know, infrequently during one's lifetime. Um, he's got everything beyond the fact that he, he can tee it up and go win. Um, and obviously showcasing his remarkable athletic abilities. Um, he's also got that unique mental approach. Um, this is a guy that is more disciplined, more focused, believes every single day he wakes up in every part of his life he'll be better. And, um, and that, you know, that kind of ingredient many times separates the, the good from the great athletes. Um, and beyond that, um, Tiger really understands, and this may be a credit to his upbringing, um, what it you know the responsibility he carries being the kind of athlete he is and the kind of really celebrity he is as well because of because of his performance as an athlete um and he manages that with respect and responsibility and you don't often see all of that come together in a one individual which is why i think he is you know uniquely special Cindy, with Tiger on the sidelines last year, TV ratings for golf events dropped. You know, I can tell you, as a casual fan of golf on TV, if Tiger's not in the mix, I'm not watching as much. And and we've seen research that has backed up uh, those findings. Did Nike Golf see any kind of a dip in sales, or was there any kind of a a lack in interest because Tiger wasn't out there every week wearing the, the Nike product with his hat on and, you know, 
featuring all of the, the things that he wears for Nike. When he's on the sidelines, he doesn't bring the same presence that he brings when he's on the course. Well, we we at Nike still felt Tiger's presence because, um, you know, even his absence, he was still part of the conversation. He was still working with our product teams. He was still part of our marketing efforts. Um, he was still interfacing with some special, you know, customer events we had. So he was still involved, you know, with our business. Um, he also was, you know, when he was playing before he before he he got injured, um, was the core part of the golf season. So, um, you know, if 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 timing had to work in one's favor, maybe the timing in that situation worked worked in our favor from a business standpoint. But but I can say that, you know, obviously he creates energy. Not not just for golf, but certainly for Nike Golf. But we're fortunate in that he is just part of a team of a very accomplished group of Nike Golf athletes that tee it up around the world week in and week out. So our brand was still out there, even when he wasn't necessarily teeing it up. And um, we still felt like our products and our brand were being showcased for the other through the other athletes that were that were playing. Sure. Uh, a few more things on Tiger, his bag. Buick was on his bag for the last nine years. We learned this week that AT&T is now going to be on his bag. But there was some discussion that maybe Nike would be on his bag after Buick dropped off. Were there any discussions about Nike Golf being on his bag, or do you feel like you're on enough other things on Tiger that you didn't need to be on his bag, too? We are we are quite comfortable with um, the, the brand statement he makes with what we're doing with him already. So for us, it just it, it didn't. You know, it didn't make sense given the branding we already have accomplished and we continue to have with him through the other product placements. Cindy Davis, the president of Nike Golf, is joining us. Cindy, in 2005, then Nike Golf president Bob Wood said, in order to be a great Nike athlete, you have to be a winner first. I would agree with that. Michelle Wee, she's yet to win an LPGA event. She's currently under contract with Nike Golf. It's no secret that she hasn't performed up to the lofty expectations that were set for her when you signed her. What's going to be the determining factors you will weigh when you consider whether or not to re-sign her after her current deal expires? We, um, you know, we have, we believed in Michelle when we signed her. We stood by Michelle when she was going through a lot of the, the ups and downs of being such a young, promising athlete. Um, I think what's most exciting for Michelle, frankly, coming into this year, is she's got a consistent place to play. And I, I really think that's going to make a difference in her development, which um, we still believe her development is going to lead to her being a winner. And um, her first tournament of the year in Hawaii, she um, she finished second. And we actually celebrated Michelle's start to the LPJ Tour with a print ad that had um, – you know, some an understated picture of Michelle and, and had the swoosh and obviously our theme line just do it and essentially it said, Hey look, no special invitations, no special treatment, no special access, just a card and opportunity. And I think that's what Michelle needs is just the opportunity. So we're we're excited to watch her develop this year on the LPGA tour. How have you been able to gain traction in the women's golf space? I know uh by my research, women don't play as many rounds of golf per year as men do, and it's probably a tougher sell to the women for equipment and balls and apparel than it is to men. Do you feel like you've been able to gain the traction in the women's space that you were hoping? Fortunately for for us here, Nike 
already has a following um, with the brand and through the women's training, women's running effort here. So for us, the challenge was to interpret that brand for the woman golfer. And you had to begin by first having a strong product offering. We, uh, We spent the last three to four years really focusing on our product offering across all categories, meaning apparel, footwear, ball and club, and um, are very proud of the product offering that, that, we've, that we've introduced to the marketplace. And people like Michelle and Suzanne Pedersen and Grace Park and uh, young South African Ashley Simon and uh, Paige McKenzie here from the Northwest um, all go out now and, and just like our athletes on the PGA or the European tours, um, bring forward and showcase our product to women golfers. So we've we've actually grown that segment of our business. And I think it began first with the right product, with the right brand, and the right way to communicate to that woman golfer. There's a there's a vibrant audience out there if you pay attention and you deliver them the right product. Well, Cindy, thanks so much for taking time to join us on Sports Business Radio this week. And go to NikeGolf.com to learn all about uh, Nike Golf and their vast array of products. Thanks so much, Brian. Thank you, Cindy. Have a great day. You too. Guests appearing during our Sports Sense segment will be treated to the gold standard of all steakhouses, Morton's the Steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. For the Morton's nearest you, go online to mortons.com. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. This is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. We live in an age where everything is on the record. What we say anywhere, whether it's in an elevator, in an email, or during a conversation with a reporter, is now being broadcast instantaneously on YouTube, in a blog, or through the mass media. It's easier than ever to spot someone who has been traditionally media trained and is just giving you that same old boring PR speak. I want to help you navigate the tricky media landscape. When I'm not hosting Sports Business Radio, I team with former Nike PR director Lee Weinstein to form Evergreen Media Training. Evergreen Media Training assists individuals and groups by offering unique preparation and training catered to your specific needs. From explaining today's media environment to providing you with post-training, monitoring, and feedback, we'll guide you every step of the way. With nearly 40 years of combined experience working with some of the biggest names in the sports industry, we'll help you communicate your messages honestly, thoughtfully, and from the heart. For an overview and a list of services, visit evergreenmediatraining.com or email me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. A few baseball tidbits for you this week. Oakland A's officials have announced that the team has bowed out of plans to build a new stadium in Fremont, California. The A's had planned to build a $1.8 billion ballpark village consisting of a 32,000-seat stadium, 3,100 units of housing, and 500,000 square feet of high-end retail about five miles from the nearest BART station. That's a big blow to the A's efforts for remaining in the Bay Area. Other Bay Area news from across the Bay with the San Francisco Giants, Cy Young Award winner Tim Lincecum agrees to a 650000 one-year contract with the Giants on Thursday. That's got to be the bargain of the century. Lincecum was 18-5 last year as the Cy Young Award winner in the National League. 2.62 ERA led the major leagues in strikeouts with 265. Meanwhile, on that same team, Barry Zito making $120 million plus. What's wrong with baseball? You figure that out. A lot of thank yous on our show this week. Cindy Davis from Nike Golf. Seth Davis talked about his new book. Go out and 
Get that at bookstores now, Amazon.com, starting on Tuesday. Our show staff, Nathan Roach, Bobby Corser, Josh Blank, Darren Peck, Ron Barr, James Harrison, Doug Zanger. Our sponsors, Morton's The Steakhouse, the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon, ProTrade.com, and Evergreen Media Training. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast every week. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com and click on the podcast page. I'm Brian Berger. Have a terrific week. We'll talk to you on next week's edition of Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Robert Sarver, the owner of the Phoenix Suns. When people come to a Suns game, what kind of an experience do you want it to be for them? We want them to be entertained from the time they walk in to the time they leave. The co-owner of the Sacramento Kings, Gavin Maloof. Gavin, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Brian. How are you? Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. Sports Business Radio. Saturday. That's why you're a smart business person. <laughs> or at sportsbusinessradio.com.